Fire and Bones podcast, a conversation between two pastors over the text we are preaching this week. I'm Michael Crosswhite, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I am Nathan Loudon, the pastor of Millwood Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. Follow the podcast, rate it, most of all, share this podcast with a pastor you know might benefit from it. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Dude, every week, do you just go, why did I choose Nathan to do a podcast with? <laughs> do you Have you thought that yet? If you haven't, you should have. Many times. I've Many never times. thought that about you, by the way. <laughs> every every week, it's the same thought. How, how could I God have possibly graced me with such a good friend, <laughs> you, with so much wisdom? A, you are and, such a liar. You are <laughs> such a liar. Oh, in all sincerity, I look forward to uh, getting on the phone with you every week, no matter if it's uh, talking about preaching, talking about marriage, talking about personal things, ministry things, or talking about what we've been watching on television. TV shows. I like I, I I like to watch things on TV. It's it's it's, uh, it's look it, it it makes the books a lot more exciting when you've seen the TV show <laughs> or the movie. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah like, I, I know it's coming next. You, oh man! So would you would you say, for example, the Chosen that makes the Bible better? You know, it honestly it it brings to light a lot of things that were going on in Peter's life. You know, I feel like it illuminates so much of mm. the Bible for me. You know, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I can't tell if you're about to be sarcastic or not. Uh, I don't know. So, uh, but in all seriousness, the chosen. We've talked about it a couple times, some of, some of the episodes in particular. Uh, I've watched the first season with uh, my wife and kids, and we've watched the first episode of the second season. And, you know, honestly, my wife and I have cried multiple times. I've looked over and seen her tearing up watching The Chosen. But bringing the kids in, my dear sweet children, there's so much narrative there's more narrative than I think we might realize in The Chosen. It's not a lot of great action, right? Especially when some of our other shows that we've watched are like Marvel, you know? Um, and it, I, I honestly think, I want to remember what episode it was, the first or second one in the second season, where uh, uh, the Sons of Thunder wished that Jesus would call down fire on the Samaritans. And I think my kids were also in the category of, man, I wish he would have done that. That would have been cool to see. <laughs> because Jesus is does Jesus going to snap here with the infinity stones? <laughs> just, he's going to snap the Samaritans exactly. out of oblivion? Right. Because Jesus just discipling the disciples to be, um, you know, to understand who he came to save wasn't as exciting them so we, we've had so like watching some of the episodes has been hey kids you guys need to be quiet so we can hear this show <laughs> they haven't been entirely interested uh, but I think it's uh, for general purposes an excellent 
uh, portrayal of uh, real uh, a, a real concept of the person of Jesus Christ, and there's a few things here and there where I kind of wince and I'm not totally on board, but it is deeply impactful. Uh, you can tell they know the Bible. They're trying to tell the story of the Bible. This is not only their story made up. I've, I've enjoyed it. I, I like it. It's helpful. And what we actually did for our kids uh, for the first season was I would look. I watched some of them. Colette and I watched ahead. But I would look and see what is the section of Scripture. So like the last episode was Jesus at the well in the first season. Jesus at the well with uh, uh, the Samaritan woman. And so we, we opened up John 4. We read John 4 and talked about what we were going to be looking for, what this story is about, and what it means. And then we watched the episode. Um, just so that our kids know that we're going to watch this they might, they might say some things that aren't in Scripture. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily liars, you know, the producers, but that this comes from the Bible, and that's what makes this so great. Not that this is just another good sitcom, another good production, but this is trying to tell the story of Jesus, which is what, if there is anything amazing about it, it's Jesus himself. But I've, I've really enjoyed it. Have you, you said you have seen the first season you haven't watched any of the second season yet. I, I haven't seen one episode of the second season, but I've watched the entire first season once uh, with my wife, and then we have started to rewatch the first season with our kids. We're only two episodes in. We actually, with our kids, they're a little bit younger, and so we skipped the first episode because it's just a little bit dark. Um, it's yeah, it's a bit much. Yeah. Is that that's Mary possessed by a demon? Yeah, and then there's some it's innuendo. Intense. They they do a pretty good job, I think, of just sort of skipping over things you don't need to see, but sort of hinting at certain right. things, questions yes. that we yes, we really we, didn't feel comfortable answering for kids our age, our yeah. kids' age. But yep. you know, yeah. Uh, but we started to rewatch the first season with them. And, um, and yeah, I mean, on the whole, um, I, you and I probably have some similar, uh, complaints about it, but I, I do think that we kind of see this show maybe a little bit differently. Um, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And yeah, there were times too, where I was fighting back tears, um, you know, especially I think the Nicodemus storyline was the one that was just the hardest for me to watch. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that, that the, especially the way, you know, there's obviously the meeting at night and then there's, um, but I think when they come back to that at the end of the episode, which is a, which is an event that to our knowledge does not take place in anywhere. In, well, it definitely doesn't take place anywhere in scripture to our knowledge didn't take place at all. But the right. way that they demonstrate, they visually depict the struggle that Nicodemus is under, um, you know, is just, is not only gripping, but it's just, it's relatable, I think. And, and you start to kind of feel for the position that he's in. And um, yeah, I mean, just, you're able to relate to the, the things that he's going through, you know, in this story. So I think that's, it, it, mm -hmm. it's, it's more well done, I think, than just about any other thing that I've watched. The passion, you know, obviously, um, you know, outside of some, some notably Catholic things in the passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson did a few years back, 
um, I, th- I think it was probably the most, if you want like events that are straight out of scripture and just kind of a walk through the gospels, particularly the week of the passion, that's probably it. You know, I mean, it's, it's really, really close. Um, but I think this obviously takes more liberties and tries to set it inside a context of first century, um, Israel. But, you know, I think it, as far as it is able to do that, I think is, is really, uh, gripping, very emotionally gripping and very, um, uh, enlightening, I think in some, in some respects. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that Jesus as a character is, um, normal is one of the guys is a man. He doesn't walk, he doesn't wear special clothes. He doesn't kind of have a presence everywhere he goes. He doesn't stand a certain way. He doesn't, you know, talk in some, he doesn't talk distinctly from his disciples in a sense of tone and language. He's a, he's a man. Um, I think they do a good job of showing the idea that this is a man uh, among men who does things that only God can do, and the people pick up on it. Like when the uh, when the lame man is healed from Mark chapter 2, lowered through the roof, and the Pharisees are watching. I thought that was a great depiction of that scene and giving a sense of what happened that day and you know seeing the Pharisees in their garb and you know some good acting from those guys on what it would have been like to be opposed to Jesus Th- those are helpful things and i think they're uh, they help bring the story to life a little bit if you can use if you can use that language um, so i i i think it's great for that I think it's helpful. I, you and I both said that you had. There may be some things that are concerning. I've recommended this. I think from the pulpit that I would encourage people to watch this. That it is helpful, and I've encouraged people to uh, watch it in person or as you know personally as friends. My parents, I encourage them to watch it. Do you? Would you have any hesitation to? Tell anybody, hey, go watch this, enjoy it, learn from it. Well, I I actually did. Uh, I encouraged our congregation on a Wednesday night. I don't know if I've done it from the pulpit. I I don't think I have, but I, I could be wrong there. Um, but I I did on Wednesday night, not that long ago, maybe just a few weeks ago. Somebody brought it up, and you know we were talking about it, and I just encouraged people if they hadn't seen it to to go check it out and. Uh, and you know watch it give it a watch um so i have done that and i I was you know i I feel always the kind of need to say it's not the bible you know don't replace your quiet times with (laughs) with an episode (laughs) of the chosen uh as if i have to say that you know i I feel like i shouldn't have to say that but and it kind of goes without saying but But yet hey you kind of reiterate it let me just clarify how i mean this you know but um, you know, I, 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 I don't know what it is about my like ha- habits when it comes to like TV shows and movies and things like that. Um, perhaps I, I don't know, think about them differently. I don't have near the hesitation of recommending, you know, something, a, a, a TV show like this, um, that I, I sense from a lot of other pastors or people that I know um, that always typically want to qualify a lot of their recommendation of The Chosen or The Passion or a number of other uh, different presentations out there like that. 
uh, I don't, I just don't feel that kind of um, hesitation, you know, to, to recommend something like that. It just doesn't, it doesn't bother me nearly as much. And, but do you, but don't you, would you be cautious about sermons that you recommend because of what's in it or preaching that's in it? Do you qualify that or do you just kind of assume, I trust this person knows not every sermon is 100% accurate and they can tell the difference? Do you mean if I recommended a sermon from like, John Piper, John MacArthur, or something like that. Like, if I said, hey, you should go listen to that sermon, I don't see why I would have to qualify anything uh, from them any more than I would say, hey, come listen to me preach. By the way, uh, there's... (laughs) There may be things in it that are wrong. Uh, (laughs) Uh, This is a great church most of the time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. These these are faithful sermons 80% of the time. 100% 100% faithful, 60% of the time. I, I actually mentioned this in a sermon just well, last week. I was on vacation, but the week before that, uh, I actually said in the sermon that I'm quite positive there are things that I've said from the pulpit that are wrong. And if I knew what they were, I wouldn't have said them or I would correct them. Um, you know, so uh, I, I'm quite, <laughs> I go into sermons thinking, well, something's probably not going to be right or there's potential that it could be wrong. This is all, uh, this is a human after all, you know, that's, that's preaching the, the word. So I don't have the hesitancy like that. And if I did, I, I don't think I would recommend that sermon or that pastor. If, for instance, it came to like, I I've never recommended a Joel Osteen sermon as an example or a Stephen Furtick sermon yeah. or something like that. I've never recommended yeah. one of those just because I know the um, ideology that backs those sermons and that is interwoven. And there may he may, obviously, a blind hog finds an acorn every once in a while. So, you know, I'm quite positive yeah. they've said things that were true, but, you know, I, I yeah. can't guarantee where those things are when they're there, not. There was a series that came out a while back that had a little bit of popularity. And in in the commercial and then in one of the episodes, um, the relationship between Jesus and Peter on the boat, that scene, and Peter asked Jesus, what are we going to do? And Jesus reaches out to ha- his hand to him and says we're, something like, we're going to change the world. Or some, something like that. And I remember thinking, that is the most corny version of what Jesus actually tells him. Which is, we're going to go make disciples. You were a, a fisher of men. You're going to go. You're, you've, I'm going to make you into a fisher of men. And you, you totally did the Hollywood thing and added your own line. That, from that point on, I remember seeing the commercial thinking, I'm done. I don't remember what that series was called. Um, this, I think, Chosen is much, uh, is done much better of kind of putting what Jesus says in the conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, for example, and putting it into real-life conversation without forsaking it. Right, I think they take into consideration the Gospels were recollections of these things that happened in real life. And it may not—the gospel writers weren't unfaithful to tell them without telling us every sentence and word that was said, but to communicate them by the power of the Holy Spirit in an authoritative way, uh, as authoritative witnesses. Here's a scene I want to run by you and tell me what you think that my first concern in the show that I can recall. Uh, It's the scene where 
Uh, Jesus, or Peter's fishing all night. Jesus comes to him and tells him to cast his nets again. Uh, and, you know, Peter says, hey, we've been fishing. We, we didn't catch any fish. Jesus asked him to do it again. And there's so many uh, fish in the net this time that you can't, uh, you know, they almost couldn't pull them in. It almost broke their nets. And the narrative that the Chosen adds is that Peter was in trouble with the Romans because of his taxes and because they couldn't catch any fish and because they refused to fish on the Shabbat. So they're about he's about to go to prison. They're about to lose their home. His wife is about to be, you know, left alone if he doesn't catch, you know, a thousand fish quick. And Jesus shows up and and the, all these fish happen. The fish come in the boat. And I do think they did a good job of showing that Peter recognized this means Jesus is someone else. He's the Messiah. And he gets down and recognizes him as such. But it also seems to add this narrative that Jesus is the fish were a provision for his financial troubles. And I don't recall that anywhere in the text. And it could potentially tell a viewer who's unfamiliar with the Gospels that Jesus came in part to save Peter from financial trouble, to save him from earthly sorrows, and at the same time prove that he was God, which is a form of the prosperity gospel. I think that, am I fair in saying that danger is there if you're not familiar with Scripture and can distinguish that's not actually why Jesus did that miracle in Scripture. Is that fair? Or do you think that's a little just... We should just give them the artistic license and thank them for filling in the story to make it, you know, to make it a narrative for us. I, I don't think it's unfair to say these are concerning things that, uh, that potentially would have been better left out. But... If you don't have some kind of grounding in reality, then you end up making the story not a story. It's an audiobook at that point, or maybe a visual audiobook. There are there are presentations of the gospels out there like that. I think on Netflix you can get the Book of John, and I'm I'm fairly certain, though I haven't watched it all, I'm fairly certain it is literally an audiobook of the book of John in the King James with visual depictions of all those scenes playing out. And you can present that if you want to, and there are things out there like that. But if you're going to do anything other than that, you're going to have to ground characters in an actual first century context. And on the one hand, you can run the risk of depicting Peter as being rescued by Jesus in a prosperity gospel kind of way, which there are, to me, there are concerns, you know, on the one end with some of the creators and what churches they belong to and their connections and things like that. And so I get that. I, I can understand that hesitancy. And I feel it as well. At the same time, you 
uh, also ground the disciples in a realistic depiction of their nature. These are not saints. These people are drastically different than Jesus. They're men like Jesus. They have the same kind of, you know, maybe they have senses of humor. They have um, sarc- notes of sarcasm. They have um, gestures of common, you know, parlance amongst humans, like the way we interact with one another. And so those things are common amongst them and Jesus. The difference is they are, uh, you know, in one way or another, scoundrels. And to some extent, I mean, the Bible, outside of, let's say, for instance, Peter denying Christ three times, or maybe Peter and Paul having a um, confrontation in Galatians over the way that Peter responds to Gentile brothers when Jewish brothers are around, things like that. Outside of those kinds of depictions of just, hey, these are regular human human beings too, um, you don't really have a whole lot of that in the scriptures. I mean, some you do. You have them asking questions and things like that that, that just kind of typify um, you know, a, a very finite human understanding and them not totally understanding who Jesus is. But you don't have necessarily the sort of gritty nature of humanity. These people struggled with depression or they struggled with temptation to sell out you know, to, to Rome or, um, you know, some are identified as a zealot, you know, meaning that they, they probably had some proclivities to creating a war with Rome and were ready for the next revolution, you know? Um, so you have some of that interwoven throughout the gospels, but I think it's just enough to give you an idea that these were men just like you and just like me, they were 2,000 years before us, so their society was a, a little bit different, but not as different as you think it might be. And in as much as this medium, this presentation of the Gospels is able to communicate that to people, I think it, it removes some of the, what, what can be, I think, for a lot of lay people, a mystique about the Bible, about the uh, the people that it's the Bible is talking about, uh, it removes a lot of that mystique and says these are not um, these are not saints; these are sinners. And this one individual, Jesus, is coming to save them, and they're in the process of realizing that they're sick, and He is coming to save them in the midst of their sickness. And um, I, I think in, in as much as it does that, it's really helpful. So while you may run the risk on one side of communicating some theological point that I think people have to make some jumps to get to, on the other end, you, you could communicate to them the sort of gritty nature of human existence and helping to set these disciples within that context. And that to me is really helpful. And I think it is really good and something that it does quite well. Yeah, 100%. And I would say, just to be clear, I don't think the creators of the, the series are, uh, I don't know, I don't really know anything about their doctrine or their, that's not, that's not true. I did listen to one either podcast or video series. Uh, is it Dallas Jennings? Is that the creator's name? Dallas Jenkins, um, I think. I think it's Jerry Jenkins, yeah. Jerry Jenkins' son, I'm pretty sure. 
Okay. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Um, so he's, you know, he talks about their pursuit of biblical solidarity uh, and trying to make it come to life. Like it, The Bible's not a script for a movie. So if you are going to depict this, you have to fill in some characters. Totally get that. And I would, I would, one of the things that most encouraged me doctrinally is the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus at night where he he's so helpful. He takes Jesus' conversation not just in the first half about being born from water and flesh and about the Spirit coming, uh, you know, not from where it comes from, but he goes farther to talk about sin and the light, the rest of John 3, mm-hmm. and puts it in the conversation with Nicodemus. And he talks about, he, you know, we have Jesus telling Nicodemus that he came for sin, and he came to uh, forgive sin and be crucified for sin, which I thought was so helpful. You could have avoided the idea of sin, the subject of sin, and, and made it something different. So I thought there's a few places where they went, where they did so well uh, that I thought was that I just love. I thought was awesome and helpful, and I think faithful to Scripture. Uh, so I don't think that they're trying to be prosperity gospel or trying to do that at all. But that when you create a problem that Peter had, that the text doesn't say that he had per se, and you have Jesus coming up to fix that problem. It if it if it does send viewers down the wrong theological track it doesn't necessarily seem like the creators of the chosen it it seems to be an implication that we would take as viewers rather than they're trying to portray that doctrine but that's part of the the difficulty of um, art right that's part of the difficulty of cinema is what are you trying to communicate with this Uh, and you know to be honest I think when you're when you're claiming to communicate the Bible, uh, your artistic license maybe should be a little smaller, right? Um, maybe we 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 ought to have a a higher standard than other artists because they're not just painting ideas uh, and telling stories. They're trying to retell a story that's very specific. You think that's fair? Well, I don't I don't disagree with that at all. I mean, we're we're we are dealing with a book that we as Christians believe is drastically different in nature than any other book that's ever been written. And we all as Christians agree to that. I I so in as much as we take the content of that and depict it in any way then we should strive to be as faithful to it as possible i think what i've heard from them even very early on was what we're trying to do where is where scripture speaks we want to say what scripture says where scripture is silent we want to give possibilities of situations that help set the things that scripture does say in a context that's in the realm of possibility that helps you to understand how these phrases and these things that were said, these stories that took place, um, real historical events that took place uh, could potentially have come about. And there's no other way I think that you can really do that other than to just put the disclaimer out there up front that look, some of these things, are literally written for us in scripture and we take those as literal as we possibly can or we take them how they're meant to be taken but mm-hmm. but then 
outside of that, we're trying to ground it in a real story. So there, there's going to be characters that you're going to see that they're not even in the Bible. We just bring them in because they help build the color of the setting and the story. Um, there, we're going to give, for instance, Matthew is sort of depicted as kind of like a, a someone who is on an autism spectrum and, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe has Asperger's or something like that. And I think the actor, if I remember right, I think the actor has said he actually does have Asperger's. And so hmm. he, he is, um, sort of acting I guess to some degree, an extreme version of himself, and um, and so did Matthew have Aspergers? Well, I mean, we don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. I have no idea. And the Bible doesn't really give any indication in that direction, one way or the other. And so, but it helps to ground Matthew in a, as a real person. He's a real person. He had different, you know, ticks and things like that. That. All of us do, and um, but him having Aspergers can give you a different kind of uh, maybe picture of what it meant for him to be a tax collector and what that would have meant to his family. We don't hear anything about Matthew's family, his parents or anything like that, but in the show, he is depicted as being kind of ostracized from his family. That's a very realistic idea of what might have happened mm-hmm. to him. Um, yeah, as a you know, tax collector. Sure, yeah. as a tax collector. And so, again, there's another example, like that. that's not in Scripture, but it does ground him in some sort of coloring of reality. And I, I totally get the concern and really share the concern to some degree I just, I don't know how many people actually go to artistic depictions and go, that that really happened. Yeah, that's true. Matthew was ostracized by his family. Matthew had Asperger's. I don't know how many people are actually doing that. In as much as they're doing that, I mean, that's a sinful use of media for sure. But, and, and, but I, I think people go into media, especially film, like visual media, so TV and film, with the understanding that this is going to deviate from the book in ways that are hard to, you know, explain if you haven't read it. So you really need to read the book if you want to get a better understanding of the actual visual depiction uh, because it is going to deviate and the book is, you know, always far better, you know? And so we, I had this conversation actually last night with my boys, we're reading Lord of the Rings. I'm reading it out loud to them and, and have been for some Mm -hmm. time. And, and um, there was something that I didn't even pick up and I didn't, didn't understand because I, part of my memory was, uh, was from the movies. And I remember there's a scene in the last movie, I believe it is where, um, I think it's uh, Frodo and Sam are headed, headed into, to, or headed to Mount Doom. And, uh, they, uh, there's a, somebody coming, I, I think it's an orc or something like that. A, a, an enemy is coming and they cover up with the cloaks that they have around them and they look like a rock. And the, enemy doesn't see them and just kind of passes on and I thought in the movie I was like well, I don't understand why that's happening and then last night we we're in the first book and I'd forgotten that those cloaks were given to them by the elves and it causes some sort of they blend in to the surroundings and it's kind of like a special cloak you know mm-hmm. and uh so I, I remember when I when I read that I thought you know all that that 
totally makes sense. That's not depicted at all, it, it, to my to my memory anyway, at all in the movies. Right. And it makes that scene make a whole lot more sense. So I think everybody goes into v- v- movies and TV shows like that, understanding that there's probably some things that I'm not going to catch okay. that are kind of underneath the current. And then there's some things that are not um, fairly depicted or perhaps you know are different than what the way they are in the book. First question, do your boys have any idea how geeky you kind of are about yeah, that? Yes. Do they even know? I don't th- no, I don't no, I take that back. I don't think they do. The, my kids are homeschooled, so they they're, they're <laughs> they don't know the water they're swimming in. Right. They're going to be weird in so many ways. Like when they're around their friends and their their friends are talking about, you know, uh, you know, whatever, all kinds of different, you know, games and things like that. They're like, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, so yes, well, they're weird in I, a number of ways and we're happy about that. Yeah, I agree. I I just I'm real we ought to be hypersensitive about the prosperity gospel and where it shows up. And so when I saw that, that's what I thought. And I didn't think ill necessarily of the creators, but, oh man, you could could take that the wrong way. I think another big concern here is, and the funny thing is, I I love The Chosen way more than I have concerns for it. And I appreciate it way more than I have concerns. Um, But a concern in the culture that I have is if people begin to watch this and be moved to tears and spiritually or in in their affections in a way that preaching doesn't, uh, in a way that scripture doesn't, in a way that fellowship with Christians never does. And we just kind of have a a media experience of Christ and, and these things rather than a personal faith in Jesus Christ because of his word. Because I can say that preaching and the Word itself is the power. Christ himself is the power unto salvation. And if we think like, oh my goodness, if my mom could watch this episode, she would believe. She would be influenced. She would get it if they could see it like this. I think it's really dangerous. For one, there were people who saw the miracles happen. And they did not believe. They didn't They didn't see the movie. They saw the thing. They ate the bread that Jesus made appear out of nowhere. And they still did not believe. They saw Jesus raised from the dead. Still did not believe. You know, that's um, uh, Luke chapter 16, where Jesus is talking about talking to uh, the rich man and Lazarus, uh, who'd both die and go to the bosom of Abraham. And... Uh, the rich man realizes his sin during his life and realizes he's lost his chance and he wants to go back and warn his brothers and uh, in the narrative um, the rich man says if I go back from the dead and warn my brothers they'll believe and the response of I believe Abraham in the narrative in Luke 16 but obviously these are Jesus's ideas here that the response is, no, 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 if, if they do not believe Moses and the scriptures, then they will not believe if a man is raised from the dead, which we know Jesus is saying about himself, right? And so there is in our culture kind of a sensational, um, you know, if you put it like this, then it's it's moving and it's incredible and it's it's in the way we think about worship, it's in the way we think about preaching, it's in the way our our 
church culture uh, thinks about movies and entertainment. Uh, it moves us like that. And when it moves us like that, it really moves us, as opposed to the Word being the power. Another another example um, is, uh, did we talk about this already on the show? The... Um, uh, the the boy who uh, who died on the hospital table, uh, went, uh, Colton Colton Burpo. It's it's that kind of thing again that really concerns me, where there is kind of a response that was like you know I was really having trouble believing, really unsure, but then I heard this story, which uh, kind of fogs up some ideas that it tells uh, about Jesus and heaven, and is a little bit murky at best. Now I really believe that's an incredible testimony and experience, and it negates the sufficiency of Scripture. It negates that uh, the Word of God is um, everything we need for correction, reproof, for teaching, for training in righteousness. It's, and so it's actually saying something about Scripture by saying we, we actually need Scripture portrayed like this for it to be really powerful and moving and effective and I think that's an important concern anytime the the best depiction gets into a a media like that that we're tempted to think now that's moving now that really encouraged me and then you go to church on Sunday and you hear a sermon that is a good faithful sermon by some guy who couldn't afford to finish seminary and you're in a rural church and it's the faithful gospel of Jesus Christ and you go, man, well this is not as good as chosen. This is this is just not as moving as watching the story. I think that's a problem. Uh, and it's a problem that our, our culture enjoys and media in general and that we as a church can actually exacerbate if we're not careful. I don't know, what do you think? Hmm... <clears throat> There's so much in that that I am really tempted to agree with. <laughs> I thought it was gold. I mean, tell me, okay, so what is your hiccup then? What um, What are you thinking? I don't know if I can say that. Yeah, so uh, the person that walks into church and hears the gospel preached and goes, that's not as good as the movie I saw. Or the TV show I saw, um, you know, I, I don't. I, I would say that that there's no evidence in that response to the preached word. There's no evidence of of salvation there, you know. Or there's that's not evidence of salvation. Let's put it that way, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in as much as we're talking about how the lost world understands the Bible. I'm not sure how many are really engaging with Chosen, but let's say there's a lot maybe and that I'm, are. No, I'm not thinking mostly about unbelievers. Right, right, right. I'm thinking mostly about the church right. and the, the diet that they're given from bookstores to culture to YouTube videos and all kinds of things that uh, uh, books uh, that give give the church kind of an opportunity to go aha now i really get it now i really believe i, I mean i'm I, really impacted i get the sensitivity there i really do like i i i understand where you know people can read 
especially the, you know, I died and went to heaven stories and go, oh man. And I mean, the the book is even titled heaven is for real. You know, like I needed your book or your so-called trip to somewhere proof. Yeah, exactly. As like evidence that heaven is for real, you know, I mean, uh, so yes, that, that is, and, and, and there were plenty of people in the church that thought, Hey, what a cool story. Um, I don't know how many of those people, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's tons of people and I'm, and that showed up to church the next Sunday after having read that book and went, man, that sermon wasn't nearly as good as Burpo's book. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Maybe that is the case and, and I'm just naive. And so I suppose that that's always a possibility. I do. And, and I'm going to say something, Possible. I'm going to say something that I, that I, um, I might regret <laughs> after this comes out of my mouth. That's a great uh, lead. Go uh, ahead. Go for it. <laughs> so I, I wonder why we are not striving to, in, in our sermons, ground uh, in as much as we can the text of Scripture in reality to paint a picture of the scriptures that's as compelling. And I think we can do that with words. And I, now I can sort of the, the, my reformed brethren out there, I can just sort of hear the gasps, obviously, that of people saying like, you know, like confusing preaching with entertainment. I'm not at all. I'm just saying, you know, that I do think we have a responsibility when we preach, not only to get to the point of the text, but also help people understand it in a way that grips them emotionally. And yeah, I, I, I do, and feel it. yeah. And I, I think, I mean, hey, I might be wrong here, and I may be again saying something that's foolish to say, but I really do think that there are times where we. Uh, step away from emotionally gripping our audience for fear that we might be manipulating them. And I agree, we should never try to manipulate the audience in any way. Um, But I think sometimes we push emotion aside out of fear that that's what we're going to be doing that I don't want to set this too closely to reality because if I do, I might touch a number of nerves that might bring people to tears and I might be emotionally trying to pull the strings. I mean, part of the reason that, that we don't do a, you know, I mean, this is only a part of the reason, but part of the reason we don't do a, you know, an invitation here is because I do feel like there's a sense of emotional manipulation that can be played upon there. And I think historically that's how it's been used. And so, um, you know, so there are a lot of those things that we step aside from. And I think sometimes we do that in the preaching of the word that we, we, we want to, um, mm-hmm. We want to set before them biblical truth, but it's fine if it's dry as an old piece of toast, you know? Mm-hmm. And in reality, yeah. it's not. I mean, we should, we're, com- we're compelled by it. We sit down in our office and we are moved to tears by it often. We're, you know, in our study, drawn into the text. And, and, and the reason we are doing this podcast or even the reason we call each other all the time to talk about the text that we're preaching is because 
in the conversation that happens about the text, there is a fire literally built under us. Well, not literally, but metaphorically built under us <laughs> <laughs> that, um, that, that, that brings out that passion and desire to preach it. Well, why wouldn't we communicate that in as compelling a way as possible that the bones in the pulpits might also be uh, lit on fire and filled up with the same kind of fervor that's there in the text? And so I think those visual mediums have a power of doing that, not because they're visual, not because they're taking liberties with the text, but because they actually care about the story. And they're, they're preparing it in such a way that the, the people are emotionally gripped by it. And mm-hmm. they do that with the reality of the text, and they do that with the you know poetic license or dramatic licensing that they employ to emotionally grip people by this narrative. And yeah. I think that's good, and that in some ways, in some ways, we should emulate to a degree in preaching yeah and i think in this this is one of the things i've learned in uh simian trust that's been most helpful recently is the idea of adornment how to help your audience feel and think and understand the text how to feel the text is it supposed to make you angry upset or sad or happy and the text is all is usually doing one of those and paul himself in different ways, will use examples or illustrations to help his audience understand or feel the text. I think the concern becomes when when someone kind of sets aside the, the Bible and preaching, which is a Bible-ordained medium for regularly declaring God's Word to His people, and they set that aside and they go, well, let me pick up the chosen. Now, this really gets it. This really communicates it, and they make a trade, right? That's really that is that for me would be concerning. Does uh, that happen? I mean, are people actually I, doing that? I think we have to. I think I'm concerned that you know, like that's one of the reasons that we read the Bible when showing the kids. You know, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that doesn't that doesn't happen. Um, but I think the culture is ripe for that. Okay. Okay. Then, how far do you go with that? Like, so we we have a we do family worship um, quite often in our house. Where after dinner, you know, while the plates are still on the table, we'll uh, I'll break out the Bible. We'll sing a couple of hymns. We'll read a story from the Bible, and you know, and pray and things like that. And so, um, one of the the resources that we've used in the past has been the NIRV, which is not really, um, I, it's not really a translation in the strictest sense of the word. It, it is basically, a tr- uh, they've translated it into the NIV, and then they've taken the NIV and kind of the language, they've pared it down so that a child, a five-year-old, can understand a lot of the words. And, right. um, and they've kind of um, rem- maybe removed or, or slightly changed some of the more graphic words that are in there, rape and things like that, you know. Um, and so, mm-hmm. or the, the depict rape and things like that. And they find other kind of euphemisms to describe it and things. And so, um, is that permissible to pass off at, to my children as, 
you know, the word when there's some things that I've read in there and I've been like, uh, I don't really love that. <laughs> you know, I don't love it. And I'll even say that to my kids, eh, think more like this, you know, and, and then we kind of go on. Is that permissible? Is that, can, can we say we've actually read the word tonight? Um, you know what I mean? How, how, f- how close to that can we actually walk? Oh, yeah, I think it's like the the message translation can be helpful, but at times it can be a little a little loose. It can change the meaning, and that, and I think that's just how language works. Period. You know, try to try to translate it from Greek to Chinese, and. And, and make an accurate translation, right? It's that's difficult, right? right. So then, so, so I, then you I, actually have to then go a step further and say, what about our English translations, and how sometimes, well, yeah, we same. we know that there's not going to be a wooden translation of the scriptures. I mean, they're right. they're going to every interpreter is going to do exactly that. They're going to translate and they're going to interpret. And where there is maybe biblical idiom, they're going to sort of interpret that into a way we can understand it because a wooden translation absolutely would not make sense for anybody and so then is that permissible now to do and where is that line of permissibility where at some point you just hang the responsibility on the hearer and say you're responsible to know and if you if you watched you know a depiction of scripture or you listen to a sermon or you read you listen to an audiobook of the King James Bible but you didn't investigate those passages to see what they meant you just took them for whatever they meant you took Eugene Peterson's words and you just kind of ran with them and you uh, you're right. still responsible to know what right. the word actually says and what it means because in some capacity I mean even a sermon is not going to be strictly the biblical text there's going to be uh, illustrate some of the most powerful things that I think people have ever felt in our church from the um, from from the the preached word is perhaps the way an illustration helps m- make clear something that's in te- in the text, and yeah. they're gripped by that and they remember that for a long time, and so. Are those things not useful? Of course they are. And we would say, of course they are. Are they a replacement for the biblical text? Absolutely not. Do they point to the reality of the biblical text? That's what we're wanting. And let's not forget, the best storyteller to communicate God's truth to people has was Jesus himself, who spoke in parables a lot. Um, you know, and 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 who can not read the parable of the Good Samaritan and and not, as you think about the historical context, be shocked and appalled that the Samaritan is the hero of the story, you know? That's it with intention, you know? He's doing that on purpose. And to our knowledge, these people didn't actually exist. Um, he's presenting a, a story that still communicates the truth of God's word to the people that he's talking to. And I think in yeah. as much as these mediums do that, I think they're helpful. And of course, there are concerns all around it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't disagree with any of those things um, that you're concerned with. I just probably don't ex- don't feel as much concern maybe as, as you do or as some do. Yeah, and I, I think... I think what I have in the back of my mind, uh, and I pulled it up here, is this article um, from Al Mulder 
years ago. I don't know what the date is. Uh, let me see if I can find the date. Uh, January 20th, 2016, and it's called The Scandal of Biblical Illiteracy. It's our problem. And he talks in there that he says 82% of Americans think that God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. Uh, at least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Considerable number of people think that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. So <laughs> that's pretty bad. Real. This is a real article, and so from that's what I have in the back of my yeah. mind is not that, that. I mean, Chosen is great. I I can't wait for the rest of the episodes to come out. We're watching them. Me more than more than my kids. Um, however, we live in a culture that's so biblically illiterate. And that would, like, I I include, like, my own church thinking as a pastor. I, part of the, part of a, at least once a month, an application in a sermon is read your Bible. You read your own Bible. You commune with God through His Word. You pray Scripture. You read the promises. You read the gospel, right? For your own growth, maturity, your your own edification. And so, when when I see how illiterate Americans are in general, I just have to assume that my congregation isn't special. That we some like we would just ace all the, you know, the Bible trivia is all our favorite games to play on Friday night. You know, mm-hmm. um, that we would have our own issues of just being familiar with Scripture. But maybe not familiar enough to discern some things in the world at times, um, and so, we, so I don't. I think that's what I have in the back of my mind. All right, is that kind of thing, not just uh, you know the idolatry of film per se. Okay, not this only. is a, this is a soapbox for me, and I'm about to get on it for just a second here because I am so <laughs> sick of the of the phrase biblical illiteracy. And it being described as the problem in today's culture. It is not biblical illiteracy. No, it's not. It's not biblical illiteracy. It's biblical apathy. That is the problem. Biblical illiteracy spawned biblical apathy. But where we are now is not biblical illiteracy. People don't read the Bible and think, "I, I don't understand what it's saying. They don't read the Bible. They because they don't think in it they can one they can understand it and two that it has really anything to say to them and I think that is precisely the problem that powerful sermons that 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 not only get to the point of the text but consider for a moment how to not preach this like a dry piece of toast I think that's what those kinds of sermons that's the problem they solve is that people that are sitting in the pew who come in in a biblically apathetic way who think that there is nothing that the bible has to say to them i've just got to sit through this you know hour long or however long sermon that i'm going to be listening to or worship service and i'm not going to understand any of it and it's not going to be important for me and it's going to be boring and terrible and this book was written finished more than 2000 years ago and has absolutely nothing to say to me anymore are now gripped emotionally by what has been presented to them that's grounded in the reality of the of the bible itself and and as much as a show maybe like the chosen can do that 
I think that's helpful because it's not trying to tell people necessarily what the text of the Bible actually says as much as it is trying to convey the meaning that is there in the scriptures. Now, I want to be careful here because we've talked a lot about the chosen, okay? We've talked a lot about the chosen, and I am not wanting to hitch my wagons to someone else's visual presentation of the chosen. Tomorrow, we don't the even, chosen... We don't even know what's coming out in the next yeah, season I, or two seasons. We don't know. Who knows? I haven't even watched season two. I don't know what the reaction is to season two. I haven't read a thing about season two, except an occasional email that might show up in my inbox. But other than that, I don't know anything that's on season two. They might come out with an episode whenever they come out with them, and it just jumps the shark, and we all go, ah, whatever. And and so that's fine. I mean, Frozen, I mean, <laughs> Frozen, <laughs> Chosen 2. <laughs> yeah, what you, you, I have a five-year-old daughter, okay? So <laughs> I know all the words to the Frozen songs. All right. Um, but cho- <laughs> Chosen Season 2. Could could can can you know burn for all I care? I mean it, it you know, but what I, what I'm saying is those visual presentations of the of scriptures that are meant to engage someone emotionally is addressing what I think is the real problem in our culture that was spawned by biblical illiteracy years ago that has now become biblical apathy. The generation before that perhaps would read the Bible but not really know how to read it and could tell you the you know alternative names of all the kings and things like that but couldn't tell you what the meaning of those narratives actually were um, mm-hmm. the people that could read it and 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 memorize all the facts but didn't actually understand it and couldn't un- couldn't really read it and gain understanding from it and gain the real point they were illiterate but what they handed off to the generation that came after them was apathy they don't care anymore and okay, so, so it's our job to make them all, care yeah. I mean I, obviously I, through the spirit's power I'm I, you understand what I'm yeah. saying I'm saying speaking humanly yeah. I guess yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I definitely agree with you about the apathy problem. And to be fair to Moeller, he's not saying it's that we don't read our Bibles. It's that churches in particular are sidelining the Bible. Youth groups are sidelining the Bible. We're not, we're not, inc- we're not hosting Bible reading. We're not. Our, our, because churches are biblically apathetic. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, but but past pastors too. So it's not. It's not yes. like. It's a whole cultural thing, and it's generational, right? So it's 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 bigger than people just don't read their Bible, right? Um, but one thing I would push back on is like, I now I I'll put it this way: I think I enjoy the chosen so much because I I see portrayed what I already know to be true in Scripture. I don't come to it going, "Wow, the Bible." just came to life and it never has, I think I actually enjoy it because the Bible has been alive for so long. And you I, you know in, in your church and every church, teaching people how to read the Bible in a fruitful way. How do, how do you read 1 Kings, right? And, and even the Gospels, which are the some of the most dramatic and, and immediately emotionally connecting narratives and many narratives and and words and messages how do you read them right how do you have a, a literacy if you will 
where you can actually read them and enjoy them and apply them critically to yourself in a way that encourages your faith, gives you eyes to see, and makes you live differently because you actually apply it to your life. And you didn't just kind of read a bedtime story, obviously, because you know, Scripture is there to reprove and correct and train you, right? Um, so I, there's a, it's kind of a double-edged sword where it's like if, if you're apathetic about Scripture, I can see how chosen might be helpful to make you go, man, I need to get in my Bible. This is good stuff. But at the same time, it can take a, I'm, I'm concerned it could take away the kind of like, oh, you know what? The Bible is so hard to read. I'm, why try when I can? This is more helpful. You know, this is more approachable and easier. It doesn't take any work to watch TV at night for an hour. It does take work sometimes to read Scripture and apply it and and meditate on purpose. Right? Uh, but but there are pastors right now that are uh, preaching that way from the pulpit that they actually teach their congregation things that are not true in Scripture. And I'm talking about people that we would consider in the fold. You know, mm-hmm. pe- people. I'm not talking just about like your Joel Osteens and your people that are preaching prosperity yeah. gospels and things like that. I- I'm talking about people that are like, you know, I had a I had a pastor one time tell me. In our state convention, yeah. Yeah. I, I had a, a, a pastor tell me one time that, we were talking about Elisha and the the miracle of the axe head floating in Second uh, Kings six one to seven, and he, you know, kind of he presented the the story and then was like, I mean, what do you do with that? That's that's such a weird weird story and it doesn't even belong in in I mean, not he, he didn't say it doesn't belong in scripture, but you get the idea. It was like, what's that yeah. doing there? You know, that kind of idea, right? right. right. And. It takes work, but when you read Second Kings and you see that that axe head floating is in the midst of a, a legion of miracles that Elisha is doing that are that are not only reversing the uh, you know the effects of the Amride dynasty, um, but also are um, giving you know gi- giving. Uh, uh, a sign that Elisha is sort of the bearer of God's kingdom coming to rescue his people. And you see this as, as evidence that falls in that. And there's so many other things that he's doing there, uh, some kinsman redeemer type stuff that he's redeeming this man who lost his ax head from basically from potentially indebted slavery and things like this. The, the point of the text becomes evident and it falls within the context that it actually occurs in. But my point is that there are the reason that the people are there is not because of chosen. The reason that the people are there in the pews is because the pastor is there. He doesn't. He's the one that's illiterate, and it's the people that are in the the pew that are now apathetic because of his illiteracy. And I think that's the importance for us as pastors of driving to the heart of the text, getting our arms around it, letting it impact us, and really painting the picture of Scripture as it really is for the people in as compelling a way as we possibly can. And that's going to differ from person to person, but in as compelling a way as we possibly can to shake people out of their apathy. And by the power of the Spirit, it will actually happen. And so Mm. I think in as much as Chosen allows us to do that, that's important to do to strive for so yeah agreed do you think we could say it like this because i feel like we're disagreeing and it's hurting my feelings a little bit (laughs) (laughs) i love it 
it's I, here's what I'm taking away that we um, it, it's like other extra biblical it's like a commentary it's like um, you know a, a, a theological book even by J.I. Packer uh, where this is a great tool it can be misused it's a great help it can go bad if you don't if you misuse it in in proportion to how you hold scripture itself yeah I think that's fair let's just stop right there on that then yeah that sounds good (laughs) That sounds good. As as Doc Holliday once said, there, now we can be friends again. <laughs> oh, man. Well, there's just not that many people that I feel as uh, helpful to disagree with on yeah. anything. So, that's great. What are, you, what are you preaching this week? You got to preach the Bible, and it better, let me just say, I've been watching Chosen. It better be good. <laughs> Well, on Wednesday, May 12th at 4.19 p.m., it is not. Let me tell you that much right now. Um, I'm going to put this in there because I don't know what point yet, but it makes me think uh, about the line, are you not entertained? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I just, I don't know where to put that in there, so I'm getting it out while I think about it. This should be the title Um, of this week's podcast. so, oh my uh, I, um, so I might, this for us is the last sermon in Matthew until after the summer is over. So what? we, we have, we have, uh, had a, well, I say tradition, this is, this will be the, the second annual, um, where we have stopped that, that old tradition of Emmanuel Tuscaloosa exactly where we have stopped and preached a summer in the Psalms and so basically uh, I take 10 weeks in the summer and preach uh, 10 Psalms just I'm preaching in, at your church room. next month I'm not preaching in Psalms no you're not uh, you're gonna come in and we're gonna tolerate it uh, no uh, so <laughs> Uh, I mean, after this conversation, I do feel like I need to go up my game on that sermon. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, just, well, I'm just saying. Well, you know, I, I was... Could, could I, I show some clips from The Chosen in my sermon? I actually offered you, because it was going to fall really close to the week we would be in Psalm 23, I offered you <laughs> Psalm 23, and you turned it down. Um, so, I mean, who doesn't have a sermon on Psalm 23, uh, for goodness sake? But anyway, oh, uh, neither here nor there. But uh, we so, so this, for us, is the last sermon in Matthew for a couple of months. And we're going to do 10 Psalms. We're going to go through from Psalm 21 through Psalm 30 in, uh, over the next 10 weeks after this Sunday. And, um, and so we close with the final judgment and it's it sort of, uh, you know, scripture sort of aligns for us here uh, god's sovereignty kind of put all of this together and um we're ending chapter 25 this sunday with the son of man coming in his glory and um and separating sheep from goats and so for us mm-hmm. the kind of picture is the curtain is the second act really sort of dropping before the third and final you know kind of showdown and um in it 
basically, he tells the story of the final judgment when the Son of Man comes in his glory with his angels and sits on his glorious throne, and the nations are are uh, in front of him and stripped of all uh, pretense and uh-huh. are evaluated based on their works and they are and we can talk about that because that's obviously a point of contention in the text um what does he mean here you know judging them based on their works and what what exactly how do we understand that you know but he basically separates some sheep from goats and welcomes the sheep um who who have uh fed the Poor, who have given the thirsty drink, who have clothed the naked, who have um, visited those in prison, and who have taken care of the sick, he welcomes them into the into his kingdom uh, because as they've done it to the least of these, um, they've done it to him. Then he does the exact opposite with the goats on his left and sends them to the eternal fire and to eternal punishment with the devil and his angels. So that's how it ends. <laughs> yeah yeah it's gonna be a really happy sunday uh you know <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah oh man you know this is probably one of those passages that's easy to preach a fire brimstone sermon or has been i guess i don't know um what's your what's your tone like how do you sound in the, in the going from our conversation how do you what do you sound like because you don't just get up there and preach in melancholy tone you don't you don't just preach happy uh there's a there's a there's a pretty stark tone here so how did from beginning to end what's your what's your tone like for your 40 or 50 minutes or whatever yeah i think um you know overall my desire is to communicate both joy and sadness more so than uh, beating someone over the head with, you know, a club, is more to say, I want you to really look at this scene and understand on the one side an eternity of joy that it's finally over. I mean, you know what that feeling is like of it being finally over. Mm -hmm. And uh, the joy that is there when it's not only over, but it's over and you know it's it's successful the outcome is pleasing you know the elation that you feel at that moment and the relief Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing so on the one side joy and then on the other side incredible sorrow and lament because the evidence here in the text is that the people he's really warning and talking to are people who considered themselves to be doing the work that he put them here to do. And that is the real tragedy and sadness of the, of the story. You know, it's not, um, it's not, it's not really presented to people. Jesus doesn't present it to people as turn or burn. Mm -hmm. He Mm -hmm. does in some places. And, and yeah. you know, cut off your hand, you know, lest you, you know, w- you know, or or cut off your your legs, your feet, lest you walk into to hell with both feet. You know, Th- mm. those are sort of that's a turn or burn moment where Jesus is warning yeah. them. That's not what this is. That's not the the tone that's even communicated here. The tone that's communicated here is, 
uh, immense sadness of people who consider themselves to be on the inside feeding Jesus when they see him, you know, or feeding people when they see them or, or whatever. Or, hey, if I had known that was you, Jesus, I would have done it. And they find themselves on the outside. So there's, you know, there's the sense of relief on one end where thing it's finally over and it's been successful. But you also know the other where you've may, perhaps worked so hard towards something and and it, and it it utterly fell apart. And the devastation that is there on the other side, I mean, magnify that by eternity and eternity in hell away from the Lord. That's sort of the tone that's communicated here. And so it's one of deep sadness more so than it is turn or burn, fire and brimstone uh, kind of way. At least is the way I see it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, absolutely. And it, it, the last sentence there is these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. I mean, I, th- I, I, that feels like one of those passages where you're just like, I don't even know, aside from the Holy Spirit, how could I possibly bring that to bear? You know, it's, like, it's such a great, it, it's the most sobering thing in the entire world for every person. The eternity of your soul the judgment by God. You you could preach till you're blue. How could you possibly bring the immensity that is required for the moment? Do you feel that? Kind of like, how could I possibly... What illustration could I use to make this bear? Unless the Spirit of God brings upon them conviction for their sin, how could I make them weep for their salvation? Yeah. Yeah, you, you you really can't, um, and that that's that is strictly, I think, a, a work of the spirit. There is no. Um, I, I, I'm gonna do my best to get out of the way, and really just lay the text bare in front of people and say, "This is what he's saying, and this is who he's talking to." And you know how how else can we make sense of this? And then you know let removing myself from the the situation watching the spirit uh do his job convicting where he will praying that he will do that um you know and and really um doing my best to step out of the way i I think one of the things that is the probably the most helpful having gone through the book of Matthew there's this argument that people get into and you'll see it bear out in the commentaries if you read any of them where they sort of want to ask the question um so is this this appears to be righteousness by works that Matthew is presenting righteousness by works whereas Paul obviously presents a righteousness that is by faith alone in Christ alone um you know and how do we understand those two working together? And I think that's such a silly question. Uh, as if Matthew is divorced at all from Paul or that they, mm-hmm. they're they not speaking the same truth. If you go back through the Gospel of Matthew, granted, the way he uses righteousness and the way he talks about it is a good bit different from Paul. Sure, I grant that. But essentially what Matthew is getting to in, and, and and really Jesus for that matter is getting to in the entire uh, gospel 
is that the righteousness that is true of you, the, the, and when I say that, I mean like the justification that would be true of a true disciple mm-hmm. of Jesus, mm-hmm. that is manifest in the righteous deeds that they do. And so he reiterates this over and over, even as far back as the Sermon on the Mount, where he describes the nature, the, the, the character makeup of a person included in the kingdom of God and the Beatitudes. He's poor in spirit. He mourns over his own sin. He's a peacemaker. Um, the, this is the nature of one who is a citizen of the kingdom of God. So if one is righteous, like Paul means it, then one is righteous as Matthew means it. And so I think it's such a silly question to try to parse those mm-hmm. two as if they're different from one another. They're not. They're they're coming at it, sure, I admit from different angles, much the same way Peter, I mean, much the same way Paul and James come at righteousness from different angles. But they're speaking to the same point. They're just, and, and Paul even yeah. says in, that, that, uh, righteousness should not be devoid of works. Good grief. You know, it should never be the case that we would say that. And so, he, and what, what do we see in, um, in uh, Matthew 18, where those, you know, we talk about church discipline and all those kinds of things out of that passage, but what is happening there in that passage? The church is analyzing the fruit of a person that's in their midst, and they're the person is demonstrating an unrepentant fruit, which is the mm-hmm. fruit of unrighteousness, not of righteousness, of not being justified rather than being justified. And so they're to declare them as a Gentile or tax collector, the same as a Gentile or tax collector. So yeah. the whole gospel of Matthew is pointing to uh, the fact that this righteousness, this justification, actually has evidence. And so I think the appeal to the congregation as we look at this passage is to say, look, you're not going to be left to wonder, is this me or not? He's showing you that you didn't give the, the thirsty drink. You didn't welcome the stranger. You didn't visit those in prison. And I, and I think by that, he means the community of believers um, that are being persecuted mm-hmm. and, and taking care of them and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Before this, in Matthew 10, he talks about the way a person receives the messenger of the gospel. Um, he has condemned the Jews at the end of 23 and, and says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, until you receive one like me, until you receive one preaching the good news of the kingdom, you won't see me again. And so this is a, a refrain that is uttered over and over. How are you receiving those in the community of faith? How are you receiving those that are preaching the gospel? How are you, rece- how are you responding? And the way you respond to them is the way you have responded to me. And so you don't have to sit here and wonder whether or not this is going to be you or not. You can actually know you're demonstrating it in your life, the fruit of your own justification or lack thereof. So I think that's the appeal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like it, it Romans 4 is Paul saying, are we saved by faith or works? Well, if that's the question, it's always by faith. 
and James is answering the question: um, Do the will you know will those who are saved have works? And his answer is yes. Show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. Uh, the the one who has faith but no works, that faith is dead, right? So it's answering different questions. And what I hear you saying is like this is this is saying that the Sermon on the Mount will bear fruit in your life. This is like the last lesson because uh, I'm and I haven't thought about this, but looking at chapter twenty six begins when Jesus finished saying all these things, he said to them. In two days, I'm going to be crucified. It's which which seems like a big break in the book, and so the last lesson that Matthew records is the final judgment that includes the evidence of your faith in Christ by the way you live your life, and then the next narrative is the cross. That's right. So it seems like it's kind of answering. Romans 4 has its question. James has its question. It's answering. This is kind of answering the question, what's the Sermon on the Mount look like? And how, how important is it that you actually see this in someone's life and not just hear words in their mouth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the last sermon. If you don't count, Jesus is appearing to the disciples on uh, and his you know, proclamation of the truth to the Sanhedrin and things like that during his trial. This is really his last sermon, um, you know, particularly as a free man. And if you don't count the Great Commission at the end, this is really it. So this is the last real. And it's a long, it's a long section. Oh, it's yeah. the last long section mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. And this, is, and there is some appeal here. I think it's not, imp, it's not explicit in the text, but perhaps implicit of saying, if you, are seeing the fruit that I'm talking about here, or the lack of fruit, should say, in your response to the gospel, then you kind of know where you stand as of this moment, and you can repent. And so there is an appeal that I can make, legitimately so, to the congregation who might be listening, to the people in the congregation who might be listening that are looking at their lives and they're going, yeah, I mean, I, I say this with my mouth, but then I respond this way when I'm confronted with sin, or when I'm, um, when I'm, when I do have opportunities to encourage and uh, replenish and serve mm-hmm. those around me. Um, you know, I respond a different way than what I say. And so you needn't look any further. And then also those who think that I do serve these ways, these people. Um, But, you know, in many other ways, I'm completely opposite of that. Um, You also know uh, how you, you know, where where you stand. and, And the call to repentance is there for you, too, you know. I mean, so... Um, so I think it's a, it's a, it's obviously a very challenging passage. There's, there's, it's not short of obstacles. Um, the breakdown is a little bit difficult because obviously there's two big sections to it. One, he speaks to the 
sheep and then the next he speaks to the goats and he says almost the exact same thing to those on his left as he does those on his right except just the opposite you know and so that makes Mm -hmm. it challenging because you don't want to reiterate and it it, it makes it more like your your breakdown to help people hear it kind of needs to be let's look at the first thing uh that we need to understand about this text you know how righteousness you know comes to someone how they're just fed or whatever and then and then let's look at the next part of that and, and you know that kind of thing um but so the the breakdown is going to be a little bit tricky to work through, and it's not going to be probably exactly like what Matthew has here. But um, but I think it, it's it's helpful to to preach it, you know, it, to help people see those kinds of things and bring those things to light. So uh, it's got its challenges for sure, but I, I do think it's yeah. a good way to kind of close a section on Matthew and sort of leave us hanging for season three of the Chosen. <laughs> 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 you know what I thought stood out as I was reading this too is just how when the Son of Man comes in glory, he'll sit on his throne and he will separate people. And it's like it doesn't it really take to me it just stood out as like this is not like some you know municipal court where you're your deeds are being judged by someone who knows the law, but that Jesus himself is going to sift through all people. And it's, you're like, what are you, does that make you afraid that you're going to meet him? Maybe you should be. Or can you not wait to meet him? Well, and this is, because this is, I think, it's crazy. The, the central point the if we're talking about the author's aim like what is matthew intending with this use of jesus's words here what is he intending to communicate yeah. to his audience and I, and i i think that his main the thrust of his argument is that jesus holds ultimate authority and that all people are going to be judged in accordance with their to yeah. their response oh to him gosh. because if you look at it the response is not just to the disciples like to the people that you've received or the things that you've done it's that your response to them is your response to him and that's the problem right and so someone comes to you and confronts you in sin, you might respond to them with scorn, but it's not them that you're responding to with scorn. It's Jesus that you're responding to with scorn. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, you know, I, I, what that's what he's really getting at. Your response to them is your response to me. And so how you think of them is how you actually think of me. Um, and... And so that's, I think, the, uh, the the Matthew's central aim in utilizing this story in the place that he does. Here's Jesus about to go to the cross, and he's about to face the trial of the Sanhedrin. But your response to him, he at the end of all things, he is going to separate good from wicked. And your response to uh, him is crucial. How are you going to respond to him? What are you going to do with him? Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the yeah. question that's on the uh, mind of the author, and I think that's that's basically my uh, desires to communicate that, I think, to the congregation. And so in as much as I can do that very simply and then sort of step out of the way, I, you know, I think um, the Spirit will work through His Word the way He always has in, throughout history. 
you know, and do yeah. what he will. Mm-hmm. Some he's going to grow and mature. Some he's going to, um, some mm-hmm. will meet it with scorn and rejection. And, and, and who knows, there may be even some that um, are unbelieving that come to faith. And we can only pray that to that end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, tough text. So what is um, your text this, uh, this week? Is it, is it the church of Philadelphia? Is that where you are? It's the church in Philadelphia, mm. and I've already been tempted more than once to consider how I could use the Fresh Prince intro song oh. in my sermon. Oh, um, I know you could sing it. Don't, don't do it. Uh, don't. I am very don't tempted. Do, don't, I know, I know you are. You know, I know you, you are. know my love for eighties rap. I could, <laughs> particularly TV show I could rap. Sing that whole song with no. With no beat, I could just sing the whole thing right now. Perhaps let's not let's not do that. Yes, I think. Um, <laughs> I'm in Philadelphia, uh, and the basic message, Revelation three seven through thirteen, is that this, this is one of two churches where Jesus uh, does not have a rebuke for them. He sees their faithful endurance specifically. To Philadelphia, he says, You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. And then in the promises, he tells them three times uh, that he uh, that he will attach his name to them. Uh, so that seems to be the major theme. You have not denied my name. You have endured. Therefore, I will give you my name or put my name on you. And there's a couple other themes in there. Uh, for example... Jesus is introduced as the one who has the keys of David, the keys to the kingdom, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. There are so many levels of allusions uh, to Isaiah and obviously to David here. Um, And Jesus is promising the church, because they've not denied his name, that there's an open door for them uh, into the, I think, into the, uh, (coughs) excuse me, into the kingdom. And that because they're being faithful, uh, they are, they're not closed out of the kingdom. So they have that to hope for. Uh, so it's an encouragement to keep being faithful, to keep enduring and not denying his name. And Jesus will put his name on you, uh, invite you into the new Jerusalem. He will make you into uh, the, the temple in the new Jerusalem. And you will be his forever. So you said, I think, and I can't... I. I I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but this is one of, did you say two or three churches that is not condemned in the church? Two. Well, so, two. you've seen the movie Inception? Yeah. Uh, okay. I dreamed I did. This, I don't know. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Your, you, your kids have to be thankful. I don't think they know the, the level of dad joke here. Um... You're a pro. I am, the, I am well so, known for my dad jokes. Yeah. <laughs> the reason I bring this up is because this, like every, essentially every of the letters, this, every of the seven letters, is has a chiastic structure. Yeah. They're all perfect chiasms. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Phil, I know, I know. Philadelphia has a chiastic structure uh, where there's an A, B, C, C, B, A pattern. But the reason I brought up uh, that show is because all of the letters are a chiasm of sorts. The first and the last letter, the second and the sixth letter, and three in the middle. 
that all relate to each other and have similar themes. Uh, so, well, the second church, the other, the second church, uh, Sardis uh, or is, Smyrna, Smyrna, it, yeah, is is also a church that Jesus doesn't rebuke, but encourages them to remain faithful to the end. So, second and second um, to the last. Right, and then you see Ephesus at the front, Laodicea at the back. They've both lost their love. Mm-hmm. They've both become one lukewarm. Their uh, their affections are gone. Their love is gone. Um, so you have you have that structure. So the it really helps you see that the point of this letter to this church, there are multiple um, images: the key, the doors that don't shut, the name, the temple. Jesus has this. His own new name in the last verse, or in verse 12, that, what is that about? The, I have my ideas, but the main thing is that to the, to the church who is keeping God's word, not denying Jesus' name, you're going to be rewarded. And there are, there are multiple ways that that happens. And, and, and specifically, I was thinking about this, this connects, it's not different from your text. Uh, because he says those who uh, are of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and they are not and lie, God's going to make them bow down to you. Look, I mean, feet. the whole New Testament it's is a chiasm. Section. Mine is the first book of the New Testament. Yours is the last book of the New Testament. They parallel in some. I mean, just you know, it's a chiasm. It's one big chiasm. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> dream within a dream within a dream. <laughs> within a dream. <laughs> the whole New Testament is incepting you. Uh, no, I'm teasing. <laughs> if you can't tell, I I I feel dubiously about. Uh, chiasms but anyway uh neither here nor there uh it's it's a thing it's, you, th- uh, well, you think it's not it's there debatable um so it's <laughs> we'll move on there's no no need to fight twice um so <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so okay is there i mean it's okay if you're wrong every yeah, time. it's not a big deal well i owned you in the last debate i just don't want to embarrass you twice on the same podcast <laughs> 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 so, so okay, okay. Um, I see where this is going. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow, where were we? All right. So, is there significance? Uh, there's two, a couple of questions. I'm kind of hung up on this, like not rebuking them, because I think we we you know I think in the letters to uh, to the churches in Revelation, probably one of the more common. Um, senses you get, I think, when you might, you know, just kind of poll the audience sort of deal, is that they remember the rebukes that Jesus levies against the churches. And here you've got two churches that he doesn't rebuke. And I bet, on the whole, while people might might say about the seven churches, oh, yeah, he really corrects them or they need to repent, they probably wouldn't recall that there are two churches that he doesn't say repent to. And so to me, that stands yeah, out a little bit as maybe that's important or meaningful in some way. And even the churches that he does rebuke, um, three of them, I remember, three or four, it's um, all of them except Sardis, I think, or Thyatira. There is, I know that you, I, I see your good works. I know that you are good at this, but I have this against you. Um just yeah, so it's not like Jesus showing up totally going, you guys have messed up, you're unfaithful, you're in sin, everyone needs to repent. But there is this aspect that some of the church 
Uh, and in, in last week, you know, there's, there, are, there are a few who still remain among you who have not soiled their garments. Uh, there are some who are faithful. Uh, strengthen what remains. So there, Jesus does see a, kind of like the Old Testament, a faithful remnant, if you will, uh, a faithful group within the church. And, and Jesus, through the letters, is kind of sifting through now and explaining that there will be a sifting through at the end, like in Matthew chapter 25. So then I have a, I have a question as to whether or not this, you know, in Revelation 11, you may know where I'm going with this, this line of reasoning. Um, Revelation 11, here are two witnesses that are presented as two lampstands. And we've been told in Revelation 1 that these lampstands are the churches, that that's what, that's the, the, the legend to unlock the meaning of the symbol of lampstand. So in Revelation 11, here are two witnesses presented as two lampstands, which I guess we're to relate as two churches. Does that correspond to the two churches here that are not condemned and told to repent, but are two faithful witnesses of Christ uh, in the in the in the marketplace. Um, I don't I don't see that because the several of the churches are if then statements where it's a warning to the church, a, a dissecting sometimes dissecting among people in the church. Some people are allowing in the teaching of Jezebel. You need to remove them, and I will come and I will destroy her and her children, those who are following her in the church. And a dissection within the, uh, uh, a discernment within that church of those who are faithful, right? So I I don't think I mean is that possible? Sure, I haven't thought about it. Haven't even entertained that idea to know. But on its face, it seems like. John is seeing something different, a different scene, a different display. You know, like, like like through the whole book of Revelation, it's not just it's not like a movie that just runs from beginning to end as one long narrative. It's multiple scenes cutting in and out. It's different settings, so it's not just straight through. So I think it. I don't think that they're related. Now, if they turn out to be, I don't. You know, that's possible. Um. So. I know this is not fair for me to ask you questions about a passage that is many chapters away from the passage that you're preaching. I'm just, I'm curious. Um, I've looked dumber, so I'm not worried about it. <laughs> Especially at the beginning okay. of this podcast. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so uh, if you, I'm going to wait to see what they do in a chosen, and then I'll know. Yeah. What I think about it, Revelation eleven. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna prove me right, and I'm gonna have to eat a whole bunch of crow on this <laughs> subsequent episode somewhere along the way. Um, so, it, but in in Revelation eleven four, these two witnesses here are described as two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before uh, the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. I mean, I I, th- I think we would probably understand that as the proclaiming of the gospel, right? I mean, I, I would imagine. I, it, perhaps there's another interpretation of it. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And if anyone let's go with yours, let's just go with yours for now. If, if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall. Obviously, we have images of prophets in the past who mm-hmm. proclaim the kingdom of yep. God and are able to condemn those that are around them and uh, shut the sky from rain, right? And not uh, allow it to, to, the blessings of the Lord to pour out. Um, they have the powers of the waters to turn them into blood. Obviously, we got images of Moses there. Um, and so outside of these being two literal people that come back, you know, Moses and Elijah, like some people would say, um, it's it would seem like that he's indicating that these are two lampstands. These are the churches, you know, that proclaim the gospel and are prophets of the kingdom of God in, in a in manner of speaking. And they proclaim the truth of the Lord to the people around them and what is the result, but that they are killed by the world. And um, does that does that jive? If so, are there parallels there? And and maybe that's not a fair line of reasoning, but it just when you it struck me when you said that these are these two lampstands in Revelation two and three um, are not um, really told to repent, but are commended for their faithful witness. That that sounds like the faithful witnesses of Re- Revelation eleven, but you know, who knows? Uh, is that? Yeah, the what happens in the letters way way more than we. I don't know if my church realizes this. I don't know if I've stated it explicitly yet, but the promises to the churches at the end of the letters show up at the end of the book of right. Revelation in multiple right. ways. So it's there. The the themes are being revisited over. Chapter one shows up in the letters. Chapters two and three, the letters show up later. Right. right. It's the the whole book is very well. It's one long thing. And the whole book is written to those churches. It doesn't just stop at after yeah. three. It's the whole thing is written to those right. churches here. Or to all churches. Yeah, and it's I kind of like say. chapter chapter four to the end is and this is how it's going to be. Exactly. What I've just yeah. said, what you've just yeah. seen. So I don't think it's unfair. You know, it it could be that the three churches in the middle of the chiasm who have unfaithfulness and are in, and are progressively so could be the three churches that are excluded and the other four are the two olive trees and the lampstands which could make sense because the lampstands are images of olive trees to begin with um in in the book of exodus that's what they're designed to look like so it's it's a garden plus temple language which is what the temple is is all about right um so I, I don't know. I think it's possible, but I think that's part of the hard part with Revelation is unless John says, this is the thing that I saw and what it means. Like lampstands equal churches? You mean like that? <laughs> yeah, like chapter – exactly, like chapter one. But then it, – it, but it, Revelation, because of where it shows up in its order of visions, or Revelation 11, I don't know that it demands that what he saw back in chapter – one and how it worked out in two and three is the same in eleven. Mm-hmm. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. And I might have. I got. I don't know how many weeks I have to figure that out between now and chapter eleven. <laughs> Three hundred and eighty. But I will say weeks. I know. <laughs> chapter eleven is. It's it's difficult. People have people are all over the place. Sure. So I feel a little. I don't feel as much pressure as I think you're trying to make me feel. <laughs> uh, to. 
to to decide yeah. right now because uh, that's a it's that's d- a difficult. Choice. I basically I want to bring up as many things that you haven't considered right now, so that when you finally do consider them and come around to my way of thinking, that you're up at the pulpit and you have to say. My friend Michael pointed out to me. <laughs> I've, already, I've already told you I'll never say that. I'll never say that. So that's my goal. A Texan admitting that an Alabama resident is helping. Oh. Why are you what? Oh. What? Oh. Uh, there's still Texas license plates on my car. Um, so so, <laughs> so uh, there's not con- condemnation uh, that Jesus proclaims to the Church of Philadelphia. Is there is there warrant for you to 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 your church urge them to repent? I mean, is there a call to repentance that that you can bring out, knowing that when we're preaching about the church in Philadelphia, that Jesus doesn't? Um, I'm not sure what you mean, but I think encouraging. Christian, this is encouraging Christians. You have kept my word; you've not denied my name. So, as much as you are being faithful, keep being faithful. This is the end. By implication, if you are refusing, if you are like Peter before the little girl at the, over the fire, to acknowledge Jesus because you find it difficult, or because um, you're ashamed, friends. Be in, be very cautious, mm-hmm. because you might very well be in verse nine. Those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews, but they lie. So I do think that's there. In fact, in verse nine, which is the center of the chiasm, is two things that Jesus tells the church to behold. But it's in a manner of behold, you're going to be justified if you are not denying my name. It's not so much a warning. It's a promise that you will be justified in the end. Keep not denying my name. Implication being, if you are denying the name, um, then you're in trouble. And if you are uh, somehow uh, faking Christianity, saying that you're you are the true, you know, that's the problem here is in Philadelphia, the synagogue of Satan, those who are saying that they're Jews, but they reject Christ, right? They, they deny the name, right? That's the one thing that's happening in Philadelphia. Some who say that they're Jews, they're saying that they're the people of God, they're saying that they are the children of Abraham, but they're denying Jesus. So true Jews right? then would be people that acknowledge Christ as Lord. Children of promise, yeah. Romans 9. So, yeah. so then you said at the very end here, he says, the reward, he says, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down... Uh, from my God out of heaven and my own new name is awarded to those who conquer. Um, You said, I have some ideas on that. What is he talking about there? What is he referring to? My own new name. Um, I've forgotten now that you've asked, but the, that chapter three, verse 12 is really referring to uh, the eternal temple the eternal Jerusalem, uh, which comes down out of heaven. You're, you are the temple of God. You're forever in the temple of God, spiritually, in the Revelation 21 and 22 manner. That that's what you have to look forward to. That's where this text is pointing us to, That those, those parts of that. Um, 
man, I cannot remember my own new name, what I read for that, but it will be Jesus attaching his personal name to you, uh, that you will have that, and, and the door will be open to you because you'll have his name. Mm. So really, these promises that he's getting at here, these aren't different things, right? I mean, these four, he's, I guess he gives four promises here, uh, will make him in a pillar in the temple of my God. We know later he's going to say there's no temple. Uh, so we know that's a symbol, that's a, that's a symbol I guess. Ne- uh, he says, I will write, my, write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, and my own new name. And so I have four promises there, but those are all the same thing, right? Is that how we should understand them? Yeah, but it's, yes, it's one heavenly dwelling. The dwelling place of God is now with man, which is the meaning of the temple, which is the meaning of the garden in Genesis 1 to 3. But what it's doing is drawing multiple parts of that. Um, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. So you're, you become like a part of the temple. You, you are the temple. And never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. So you're never going to leave. The door will be open to you, in a sense, into the kingdom. Um, the, the name of the city, the, the new Jerusalem. This is all of the temporary places, the, the places that were the actual parentheses in God's plan. If that makes, let the reader understand. Um, those parenthetical ways that God related to man and to Israel will come to fruition. The, the location of Jerusalem being his place of worship, the temple itself, uh, the name uh, which God gave to them in Abraham and covenanted again in Moses, I will be your people, or I will be your God, you'll be my people, you'll be my child. That's going to be true of Christians forever. So it's where we get a replacement kind of theology from. Mm-hmm. This is the this is the true Israel forever, and the true temple, the true Jerusalem, entirely fulfilled what God's been building up toward forever, or through history, through redemptive history, is now going to be in fruition like this forever. You're going to be it. So what is the? They're not going to be things that you're going to be in or places that you're going to go. Being with God, you will be it. So, what is? Yeah, absolutely. And then, what is the? You know, if we go back to how we kind of started this whole thing with this sort of uh, crafting the sermon, not only to illustrate the main point, but then also to sort of draw your audience into it and give them that that emotional connection to it. How is it that you plan on? You know, helping your audience not just see the text, but also feel it. What, what are you? What's the plan? How are you going to do that? So far, my thought has been to draw on the theme of the door shut and open and the keys. And I don't have a good illustration yet, but to touch on the fact that there is a being left out and there is a being invited in. There's a door closed. See, we've all had doors closed to us. Right, and we know what that feels like to be shut out from someone or something, from some group. This is the eternal, forever, heavenly door. And you can be shut out of heaven, 
or you can be welcomed in. And if you're welcomed in, it, it's so glorious that you, you think the temple is amazing. You this you are the temple, right? Mm-hmm. You the the name of Jerusalem is on you that you're that you're there. Um and and not denying Jesus' name is to look at an open door to the kingdom and know that you walk through it into heaven forever. Mm. It's your assurance. Mm. So, so I, I, and, go ahead. And, sorry. Yeah. No, that's so it. I, one last question. Um, how has this text so far this week hit you in terms of personally, Nathan Loudon, how has the point of this text the the you know kind of conclusion of this text the application of this text maybe how has it uh hit nathan um yeah i would say the thing so far is just the simple instruction to the christian and and i think as a pastor like i've taken off my pastor's hat and gone i just gotta keep god's word I just need to not deny Jesus and the gospel, and that my my pastoring, maybe it's awesome, maybe it's cruddy, but if I'm denying Jesus as a Christian to neighbors or lost people or in the world, uh, I'm in trouble. And if I'm just, you know, so the 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 bar, if oh that's a good term, but what Jesus asks of me is to keep Jesus's name, and I think the help. It's just been an encouragement to me, you know, not to lower the bar in a sense of what I'm expected of in righteousness, like in your passage, but the question of what has Jesus uh, asked of me in an enduring way through the trials of the earth is keep keep His name, believe, keep believing the gospel, and don't deny His name. Share the gospel, right? Um, don't deny Him before men, so that He will not deny us before the Father. Um, I think that's just been an encouragement to me. Um, this is what Jesus asked of us to mm. do, you know. Um, there are other passages where we're asked more pointedly to do specific things and repent of specific things. But this is just an encouragement to keep believing the gospel. Mm. Um, keep, in, keep enduring uh, despite the fact that other people will tell you that you are on the outside. Believing in Jesus is actually on the, the mm. inside, so to speak. I uh, the the thing the phrase in your passage that just brings tears to my eyes even reading it is when he's talking about those in the synagogue of Satan and he he concludes at the end of nine and they will learn that I have loved you that is mm-hmm. chilling mm-hmm. to me and mm-hmm. is is encouraging. so encouraging and just so comforting and I can only imagine that um i i mean not to, not in reference to this this the song <laughs> but i i, I oh, i'm trying no. every time i say that phrase now i can only imagine i'm like oh i start singing this song in my head oh, um yeah oh, but man. i just think about that moment and there's a part of Rev- there's a, a chapter and verse in Revelation that is coming to mind, and I just can't recall which chapter and which verse it is, where he talks about deciding for you and against them, um, where there's this dramatic reversal at the end of history. Uh, um, 
uh, Tolkien called it the the eucatastrophe, where everything that mm-hmm. is dark and terrible becomes untrue, and uh, you know all mm-hmm. of a sudden, where it looks like it's at its most bleak moment, it becomes untrue, and and uh, I can't help but think about that in terms of human history as persecution rises as the church uh, can sometimes seem bleak and dark, and uh, the name of Christ can sometimes seem so abused. And even in my own life, struggling with righteousness and living that way, and s- struggles aplenty, and knowing that um, you know that s- so much on the outside accuses me, even even um, even you know my own my own mind or as it were or whatever uh, satan constantly stands as the accuser of the church and the brethren and yet uh, there is when it gets the most bleak there's a moment in the in human future i guess i could say where um there's a dramatic reversal and um he exposes to everyone or he, he exposes his love for this church to everyone and I can only imagine what a comfort that is to the church at Philadelphia, to us, as you, you're considering going through trial. I mean, they're going to walk through hell, um, undergoing the torture and the persecution of the sin- those of the synagogue of Satan. And they're going to learn one day that he loves his church. And what a, that's just incredibly comforting, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it reminds me of um, the introduction sermon that I did to Revelation. We talked about John seeing a door and and being invited in, up and into heaven. And the last thing we looked at in that sermon, and I remember it was just impactful for me to consider, is the very end of the Chronicles of Narnia Mm -hmm. series. Uh, the last chapter in the last book is called Farewell to Shadowlands. And uh, in it, Aslan is explaining to Lucy and the family members who were in an actual car accident that they're not dreaming. They're not in a, a fake world. They're not in an imaginary world or in a dream world. Um, but that he says, your father and your mother, all of you, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, are dead. But now the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. Mm. And he's basically saying everything that you've been seeing and experiencing, the the real realness of all your hopes, now it's it's morning in that new reality forever. Man. Yeah. yeah. Um it's uh it, it's interesting and and you know not to harp on uh nerdy literature but you know we've both mentioned tolkien and uh c.s lewis and i think part of you know what what makes christian fiction uh we've talked about the chosen at length what part of what makes fiction uh so powerful in especially when it's written by an author who truly gets the Christian struggle is that it gives us it, it it depicts the human struggle and redemption in such a powerful way that we can all relate to that it it it, encur- it encourages us you know and and causes us to go on and I, and I think mm-hmm. that's um that's it's you know it's power it's yeah. beauty 
Yeah, and I, one of the things I think that Chosen has done well is you have the severity of Jesus in in your chapter in Matthew 25, the finality and the exclusion or inclusion forever, and you have a tone and how Jesus would have spoken those words, right? Um, and you... And then you have the grace and the comfort to marry the demonic. And you have both of these uh, like God in, in one man. And I think they show that well. And, um, you know, in preaching, that's what we're trying to do. Is our, is our text, um, is this a hopeful text? Is this a... You know what, what? What is the text telling me yeah. to say? I, I, to one say to one of the things, and I want to I want to read this because I think it's so beautiful, and it's a uh, it it comes from the nerdiest of the nerdy, the Lord of the Rings, and uh, but it's at the end. It's in I think it's in the last book um, where they're uh, they're getting closer and closer to just utter despair, and and I'm reminded of the Church of Philadelphia when I see mm-hmm. this just because of what they're under and even the church at Sardis or Smyrna I think er- earlier where they're similarly under you know the kind of temptation and um, and persecution and just utter darkness you know that, that they're facing and the appeal that Christ gives them to look toward the end and um, so it's, it's this mm-hmm. kind of depiction that Tolkien gives of Sam as he's as they're uh, journeying and they're kind of uh, under the darkest cloud and it says Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while the beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him for like a shaft cold, clear and cold the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing there was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach yeah hmm. so that's also not in the bible but Tolkien wrote it <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, yeah. it's as close as it gets, but it is not the Bible. You're right. I thought I'd just clarify that in case anyone was confused. Um, so <laughs> let's end it there. Uh, and I am excited about uh, preaching as always. And so um, I'm grateful for our friendship. I'm grateful for uh, the ability to just get on the phone and talk about these kinds of things with somebody that understands. Thanks for listening to the Fire and Bones podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing or following the show on your favorite listening platform so you can be notified every time a new episode is released. Consider leaving us a generous review if that's an option for you. And most importantly, share this podcast with someone that you think might benefit from it. Be sure to check the show notes for any relevant links, including our contact information. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions you might have. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Fire and Bones podcast. Thank you.